you will please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. I need to say at the outset again that going through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, is an exciting adventure. It should be. This is one of the toughest books to go through, especially in our day and age, because there's so much in it that is literally countercultural. It's a good thing we have these books in our, in our Bibles. Otherwise, we would not know what we're doing here and why, and we would not know the encouragement that comes from knowing that there's really nothing new under the sun. These same issues and problems have been around since the beginning, and we need to know and be encouraged by the fact that Christians have always had to deal with these issues The Corinthians just make it really easy because it's just so blatant, their issues. So as we continue in chapter 6 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we should, by now, be very clear about how Corinthian culture had the ominous reputation of being notoriously immoral. People throughout the Roman Empire actually had a saying. It's called living like a Corinthian. And what it meant was everything from being involved with prostitutes, both as part of their religion and otherwise, to every other sexually immoral situation imaginable. As demonstrated even in the tolerance of the Corinthian church that Paul is writing to, toward a certain man and his mother-in-law, which was what chapter 5 addressed. The Corinthian believers also faced enormous difficulties, even recognizing the many dangers of elevating human wisdom to such a high degree that it trumped and took the place of God's biblical wisdom. They were prone to thinking that eloquent speech was much more persuasive than biblical truth. They were dividing themselves into partisan factions in their own church and even taking each other to court and suing one another, which destroyed what they'd been taught about loving and serving one another. They even outdid the pagan world around them, as we just mentioned, tolerating an incestuous sexual relationship among their own church members, which the pagans around them wouldn't even tolerate. And all that's just what we've seen from chapter 1 through the first half of chapter 6. And we're not barely halfway through the book. In other words... The Corinthians evidently did understand how they were justified before God, but they did not understand at all 
the fact that Christians need to stop thinking and behaving like non-Christians once they come to faith in Christ. Now, in case you just read something out loud and didn't pay any attention to what it said, in your bulletin is the catechism, the New City Catechism. Since we're redeemed by grace alone through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? The children's answer is strong enough. Yes, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, and hopefully you hear the last part, and so that by our godly behavior, others may be one to Christ. And that is what is at its stake in this letter and one of the main reasons that Paul is writing it. Now, in our passage today, which you notice is only three verses, verses 12 through 14, we're going to see how Paul confronts the fundamentally flawed thinking behind the Corinthians' rationalization of sexual sin. And what he says here also speaks directly to each one of us as we too now live amongst similar ideas. If you were able, would you please stand? And I'm going to read the rest of this chapter from verse 12 through verse 20 because it really goes all together. But this way you can see where Paul's going even though we'll just be going through the first three verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved or dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Now, Paul begins here by quoting a statement the Corinthians were taking out of context and using to rationalize their sin. It's in verse 12 twice and twice again later in chapter 10, verse 23. And what is it? All things are lawful for me. This was evidently one of the Corinthians' favorite sayings or mottos. And remember, we're talking about the Corinthians who were part of the church in Corinth. And maybe you've heard many say something similar. People who claim to be Christians, who profess Christ, but say that all things are lawful. Well, where did this phrase come from? It probably was based upon something that Paul had taught them in response to questions they had about Jewish legalism. But the use of this motto shows us that the people's biggest issues involved a misunderstanding of Christian liberty. The idea would be that because every sin a believer commits is forgiven in Christ's work on the cross, then I can do anything I want in the here and now and still live like a pagan. It's covered. These words actually are true if they are understood in one particular way. What do I mean? We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. So we are now free to obey God and enjoy all the good things which come to us from him. That's our freedom. Before, when there was no Holy Spirit indwelling us, no power, no person, you couldn't do anything but sin. And whether you knew it or not, you were controlled by your your desires. Once you have become a Christian, you have been freed from having to obey that power. You are now free to obey God. And don't miss the second part. And enjoy all of the good things which come to us from him. The point is that the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ does free us from any form or legalistic scheme of self-justification based upon our own personal righteousness and obedience to the law of God. That's Jewish legalism. It's the idea that, well, I may need God to push me a little bit that way, but I can do this on my own. I can keep the law well enough that he will accept me, which is the biggest lie in the history of mankind. No, you can't. Nobody can. Paul addresses this over and over and over again in almost every letter he writes in some form or fashion. For instance, one of the best examples is in the fifth chapter of Galatians, verse 13. 
And there he simply says this, For you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. See? The same basic idea. Now, if I took a poll right now and asked everybody to fill out a, a totally um, a card that nobody else could see and ask you, when you became a Christian, did you think that you had been called to freedom? And what would you mean by freedom? That would help explain pretty much where you were and maybe where you still are now in regard to this issue. So now, Paul is going to take up the main issue here in the rest of this chapter. And just quite bluntly, it's about their sexual immorality. And he's going to make very clear how evil immorality is and why. Do not tune out. Yes, this is uncomfortable to think about for everybody. But folks, we have got to come to grips with what the Bible says about this and be willing to think like Paul is communicating here. Because this is very encouraging to hear as he unravels what's really going on in our world and in our own hearts. And what Paul does is is he weaves together several points and arguments. And what he's going to do in our verses today is connected to what we read in the whole passage. Very connected. But what it does is it gives us sort of a foundation to launch from because he's going to give three specific serious consequences of sexual sin. Three consequences. You don't hear these issues talked about like this much anymore. But we're going to because we just read them. This is God's word to us. First, sexual sin harms at least everyone involved. Not only those involved, at least everyone who's involved. And that means the ripple effect that goes on from it. All things are lawful to me, Paul writes, but not all things are what? Helpful or profitable. One commentator writes, no sin that a person commits has more guilt built-in pitfalls, problems, and destructiveness than sexual sin. It has broken marriages, more marriages, shattered more homes, caused more heartache and disease, and destroyed more lives than alcohol and drugs combined. It causes lying Stealing, cheating, killing, 
as well as bitterness, hatred, slander, gossip, and unforgiveness. The price for doing some things is incredibly high. It's unprofitable, and it's not helpful. It's amazing to me that in this promiscuous world that we live in, that all of us are touched by in one way or another, the issues that non-Christians choose to address and try to help hardly ever touches this issue unless it's some big celebrity scandal. Otherwise, normal people growing up in our world don't really see the destruction involved and the repercussions that go on sometimes for generations and go far beyond one's own immediate family. This does not mean that sex is basically evil, which is how non-Christians try to paint us sometimes. That is so far from the truth. Who created it and blessed it? God did. He designed it to be within the marriage of one man and one woman. It does mean that what God gave as beautiful and satisfying and stabilizing for marriage can so very easily be turned into something evil and personally damaging. And that means for everybody involved. Everybody. Peter instructs us about our freedom in Christ also. 1 Peter 2.16, he implores those he's writing, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God. Freedom and restraint, that's the clincher. We have, in our culture, completely redefined what freedom is as being able to do anything you want to do. I guarantee you that's a new definition in history, especially in Western civilization. That's not what it meant. Restraint really gets people riled because that implies what? Self-discipline, not fulfilling yourself, not getting what you want all the time. But let's have a little history lesson here. Freedom and restraint are both necessary in this life. And they used to be discussed, especially from the Protestant Reformation onwards, by using a term that is almost a cuss word anymore. How many times have you heard the word prudence lately? You know what the definition of prudence is? The skill of enjoying Christian freedom while at the same time engaging in self-discipline and discretion based upon godly wisdom and spirit-enabled self-control. And if that sounds like a long definition, it's not, even though the Puritans are the one who honed it down. 
the skill of enjoying Christian freedom while at the same time engaging in self-discipline and discretion, another word we never hear anymore, based upon godly wisdom and spirit-enabled self-control. Now today, an abbreviated form of this word is always, almost always used derogatorily for one who is extremely modest. What's that word? Prude. If your kid comes home and says somebody called them that word, you know what they meant. If we're tracking here, we should recognize that prudence, the skill of enjoying Christian freedom, while at the same time engaging in self-discipline and discretion based upon godly wisdom and spirit-enabled self-control, is hardly ever even talked about anymore in Christian circles. Why not? Because we have become so much like the Corinthians. And we have to come to grips with that. So the first consequence, sexual sin harms at least everyone involved. And frankly, I decided not to go through a 15-minute list of disasters. You know why? Because every one of us either is related to or knows someone very well who has literally gone through the absolute worst situations on the face of the earth because of these issues. You don't need a list. Most of you live close enough to feel it every single day. A second consequence of sexual sin that Paul gives, he repeats this motto, all things are lawful for me, that I will not be dominated means dominated or enslaved or controlled by anything. Now, this is one of those verses that has been taken so out of context by some who profess to know Christ that it's absolutely ridiculous. Let's figure out what he's talking about here. He qualifies this. He qualifies the fact that we do have the freedom in Christ to obey him and enjoy God. And his qualification is that he refuses to be mastered by anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. That's what he means. How many refrigerators is that on? It's what we're here for. We worship together. We say we worship the one true God. Is it because we want to have as our one master him and that we are so sold out to him and are so overwhelmed by his glory, his beauty, his care for us, what he did for us on the cross in Christ, that we only want to serve and love him no matter 
what that means for us. Another way to say this would be that Paul's fear is that a Christian may unwittingly become enslaved to the very thing that he's now free to do or to the things he thinks he's free to do. Keep this in mind as we proceed. Now, Paul's going to give examples of this in verse 13. And the second example gets back to the main subject, the evil of sexual sin. But notice where he goes first in verse 13 to get this across. He talks about food and your stomach. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. And this seems to be another one of the Corinthian mottos that fits well into their ideas of Christian freedom. But it was just another way to justify what? Their self-indulgence. In other words, let's indulge ourselves and not only eat all kinds of things, let's enjoy them in great quantities. What is that talking about? Is that ever addressed in Scripture? Yes, it is. What's the word? Gluttony. The soul is not involved here, so do whatever you want with your body is the idea behind it. But there's a lot deeper argument going here that Paul's aiming for. He's not going to major on food in your stomach. What is he talking about? He's using this as a parallel in the Corinthians' thinking to tear it apart and show what's really happening. Their deeper argument was that the physical activity of eating and digesting food didn't have anything to do with the Christian's morals and spiritual life in the here and now. So other physical activities, such as Promiscuous sex didn't really come to bear on morals or spiritual life either. You get it? He's connecting the material and physical body saying, well, if this doesn't have anything to do with your spiritual life, well, neither do my sexual desires that are always carried out physically. So Paul has just connected the dots Their culture seemed to gravitate to widely held ideas that the body, not the soul, was the source of all sinful urges. By the way, if this sounds a little familiar, it's because it is. It's the way people still try to justify it. It's not any big deal. It doesn't really hurt me. It doesn't have anything to do with my spirit. See where that's going? So the body was not near as important as the soul. The soul is not involved here, so do whatever you want with your body. Maybe that's what you heard. Therefore, it wasn't a stretch for the Corinthians to think that gluttony and lust were merely bodily urges. Now, I'm not sure people in our day even care about having a justification for it. 
Well, they didn't in Corinth either, but remember, he's writing to people who profess Christ. If they've heard the gospel at all, and they understand the grace of what Jesus did on the cross, they've got to come up with some kind of rationalization. So keep your ears perked. Not only do we tend to think this way when we want to go that direction, most professing Christians would have to deal with this this way as well. So basically, in the name of Christian freedom, they had become controlled or enslaved by their own fleshly desires. Let me say that again. In the name of Christian freedom, they had become controlled or enslaved by their own fleshly desires. They were claiming that the appetites for sex, like the appetite for food, should be satisfied whenever there was sexual desire. And they were defending this idea by demeaning the Christian view of the body, demeaning it, and replacing it with the Greek cultural view that there would not be any future resurrection of the body. That came in handy. I wonder why. They're all connected, guys. Being enslaved or controlled by their fleshly desires meant that their sin had perverted God's purposes for the body. Do we even talk about that anymore? What are God's purposes for your body? I'm not saying that because I'm old. Answer it. What are God's purposes for your body? So Paul writes next in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. What? In verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you see what Paul just did? He gave meaning and purpose to living in the here and now, in this world, in a body that is falling apart. But there's a purpose for it. The resurrection of our bodies is the Christian hope. God will redeem all of creation, including our bodies. Have you ever noticed the most popular films that have some kind of worldly religion in them that when a hero dies, what happens? They destroy the body in one way or the other, and these little lights flicker off in some Asian little bucket thing that glows, and it, you know, it all goes off into nowhere, and it's beautiful, right? We go, oh, that's so pretty. Do you see what that's saying? Underneath all that, it's the body didn't make any difference. It's your soul that matters. And it's going to go to a better place.
God will redeem all of creation, including our bodies. Now you start thinking about that, it, because most of us haven't, it'll, it gets kind of exciting. And there's some reasons for that. Could Paul say in any stronger way that there is a particular purpose for the body? And that believers will be raised just as Jesus was raised. Therefore, what believers do with their bodies matters. God made us with a body in which our soul resides. You are not a disembodied spirit. Death separates the unity of what? Body and soul. Death literally tears apart our body and soul. Which is why death is such a horrible thing. So the pagan conception that the body is nothing and that the soul is what really matters, flies directly in the face of Christian teaching, in which the person as a unity of body and soul is central to human life. Salvation from the consequences of our sin then is such a great and wondrous thing. God will redeem both our bodies and souls, And in the resurrection, he will reunite them. And then glorify the unity when reunited. So once again, what believers do with their bodies in the here and now matters. Listen to what Paul wrote to Thessalonians. For this is the will of God. You know... When I was a youth minister and taught later in a public high school, this was, this was the only question, question teenagers asked back then that, that were interested in God. Well, what's the will of God? Can I do this? Can I do that? What's the will of God? What's the will of God? And every time we read this verse, they didn't want to ask that question anymore if they were going the wrong direction. What is the will of God? Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, prudence. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And I hope putting it in that context helps because it is not this kind of picture at all. It's the opposite of that. So we need to ask ourselves some very important questions. In a day such as ours, when there are no more real restraints upon the desires of the individual, how important are Paul's words here? Can you latch on to these? Will it help? The biggest question for all of us to seriously come to grips with is really very simple. Will I believe and live in light of what the Bible teaches me about the unity of my body and soul? Do I recognize the incredibly damaging consequences of sexual sin to me and all those around me? That it harms 
It enslaves and it perverts God's purposes for me. It disarms you from being able to trust and step out. Looking back at verse 11, where we ended last week, do I also see myself now as a Christian who is washed, completely and forever forgiven? Do I see myself as sanctified in the arrows tense, past tense part of this, not the process part? Do I see that I've been set apart to know God and serve and love him for his own purposes? Or do you think that's optional? It's not optional. It's what you were called to do and called to be. And if you fight that the whole rest of your life, you are throwing your life away and being a horrible witness to who you say God is and who you believe. That's the bottom line. And do you see yourself as justified? Which means completely restored to right standing before the God who made you and regarded you as righteous because you're now wearing Christ's righteousness and not your own. There's a reason why Paul put all this together in these words. We've got chapter divisions. They didn't have chapter divisions. It was just flowing. Really, answer those questions. Do you see yourself, if you proclaim Christ, as being completely and forever forgiven, not because of anything you do, but because of what Jesus did for you on the cross? And do you see yourself as being sanctified and set apart by God? Now, in case you want something even heavier, did you notice the last verse in this chapter? You are not your own. That's about as anti-American as you could say. You are not your own. If you're a real believer, you belong to God Almighty. You're answerable to him. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I think Paul waited to the end of chapter 6. Because if you read that at the first, you go, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for that. Well, you did. But he wants to let you know the blessings is a part of it. The security is a part of it. The being a part of his body in Christ. The freedom you can enjoy that you never could enjoy before you knew Christ. The freedom to enjoy life knowing that you stand rightly before your God. You see the creation different. You see your relationships different. You see your backyard different. You see your neighbor different. You see your job different. You see everything different. Our calling is sure. And Christ's purposes for us in this life are clear. The question is, will we embrace his purposes for us? Because, folks, he knows exactly what we all need. And usually it isn't what you think it is. You know what it is? It's him. Period.
Will we diligently and faithfully and dependently make the most of what he has provided for us in his church and in his word to walk humbly before him, gladly loving only him and serving only him? Like